when you don't find them, the thought of getting up at three in the morning and drive, and you know you're going to be driving all day just looking for tracks. You have to kind of pretend to yourself that you'll find them, even though deep down you know that you didn't see them yesterday or the day before or the day before. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Alexander McNamara, online editor at BBC Focus magazine. Animal communities are often hierarchical, with an alpha male or female controlling the pack. The new BBC Natural Histories unit landmark series Dynasties, narrated by Sir David Attenborough, tracks the power struggles that establish those hierarchies. Following five species and five episodes, it asks, who's at the top? What do they have to do to get there? And who's lurking behind the bushes, threatening to topple them off their throne? In this episode, we're talking to Nick Lyon, an experienced natural history filmmaker who produced an episode of the series about painted wolves. With his team, he tracked several packs of painted wolves at Manapool's National Park in northern Zimbabwe for more than 500 days and witnessed an amazing power struggle between the mother and her daughter. He's talking to us about the behaviour he filmed in Zimbabwe that he'd never seen before, what it takes to create a powerful natural history story and how to gain the trust of wild animals. Here's Nick Lyon talking to BBC Focus editorial assistant Helen Glenny. Nick, you were part of the filming for the new BBC Natural History Unit landmark series this year, and it's a show called Dynasties. And much like Planet Earth 2 and Blue Planet 2, it's presented by David Attenborough. Um, so can you tell me about Dynasties? Like, what did the show focus on? Well, I, I uh, directed the Painted Wolf episode, um, and so to, to kind of fall in with the concept of Dynasties, we were trying to look for... Um, a big family that was about to, we'd imagine would have some um, kind of change of leadership within the duration of filming. The great thing about this series is that we've spent, you know, normally with our landmarks, we might spend three or four weeks in a single location. If we're really lucky, we get to go back there for a second shoot. Um, but with this, uh, we had 11 trips to Zimbabwe, so we got to know the animals very well. And because it spanned out over a long period of time, then we could identify uh, a situation that was likely to lead to an interesting story. So that's that's what um, that that was a kind of defining reason why we chose our location for the painted wolves in Zimbabwe because the matriarch of um, three packs was getting very old. So we thought there was a story to be had there. We kind of always thought of um, dynasties as potentially kind of allowing us to have almost a Game of Thrones um, sort of thing. So. So the situation was set up um, before we arrived. That um, so Tate is is the, our central character. She's the old matriarch, and she is mother to two neighbouring alphas, um, Black Tip and Janet. Janet doesn't feature in the film, but when we went out there, we were filming both because we you know, this, these aren't scripted. We don't know what's going to happen, so we have to kind of cover all our bases to begin with. And as the story evolved in front of us, then we could narrow our focus as we saw where it was um, coming from. But certainly Black Tip jumped out as a front runner very early in filming because her pack had grown very big and uh, there wasn't really enough space for her anymore. And her only option was to basically turn on her mother and, um, and push to, you know, take her throne. So it's quite a Shakespearean tale 
of mother versus uh, well, mother defending herself against her daughter. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. How did you know that that was going to take place? How did you know about these characters and about this family structure before you went out there? Um, well, we didn't know that was going to happen, but uh, we knew the full background of um, of the Painted Wolves because our um, our principal guide, Nick Murray, um, has been working with them for 22 years. So not only has he known Tate since she first stepped out of the den, but he knew her mother and her grandmother. So there's this huge body of knowledge that Nick's acquired over the years. And so it was great because instead of, you know, without the context of this, then we wouldn't have known it was a daughter, um, up, you know, rising up against her mother. And and so, you know, his insight and you know, introducing us to all the characters in Minor Fools, it gave us it gave us that true kind of family story, you know, the kind of dynastic element we were looking for. Great. And do you know where the idea for Dynasties came from? Do you know how that was generated in the first place? Uh, that I think was our executive producer Mike Gunton. Um, I think. He was just looking uh, to do something a bit different because um, we haven't done a single species in this way for maybe 20 years and certainly technology has moved on massively since then. So we really haven't done anything like this at all before at the BBC. So it was a great opportunity. I think everyone jumped at the opportunity to um, to spend that much time with individual animals because it's, you know, it's really the dream project. You get, you can it's, it's rare to be able to get under the skin of your subjects so much. And, you know, in the end, we just became part of the pack. Yeah. So can you tell me a bit about how the filming changes when you're just filming uh, one single species? What are the challenges and what are the really good things about focusing on that one species? The, I mean, I guess the biggest difference is um, when you're doing sequence work, which is, you know, like the planet Earth where you hop around from place to place and you, you show little vignettes of behavior. It's a very different framing to how you shoot things because you, you basically work out the best time of year, the best location to see a specific behavior, be it courtship or um, rearing offspring. And so you've got all sorts of pointers and cues as to when you should go, how long you need to go for and you know exactly what you want to get. You can't, you can't always guarantee you're going to get it because it's wildlife, but you've got a very strong idea. Whereas with this, it was very different because we were going there to tell the true story of these animals' lives. So there's no scripting and you basically have to be filming everything because you don't really know at the beginning what's going to happen or certainly um, who's going to you know, rise to the fore in your story because we, you know, for, for example, with Tate, we... We're pretty certain she would not survive the film, but we did not know how things would have pan out at all. And actually, what happened was very unexpected and quite dramatic. And um, and the animals that rose and the four were, you know, again, it was total curveball and surprise. And the only way we managed to, uh, you know, cover it properly was the fact that we'd been covering all the individuals in the pack from day one. So we had that backstory in place. Um, so it's a very different, you know, that's a huge challenge to know that you're having to cover all the animals because you literally don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. So you mentioned that you did 11 trips out to Zimbabwe to capture this. How long are those trips? How many filming days did you end up having overall? Uh, well, I think we had, we had 669, um, kind of crew days in the field, um, and what was that in filming days? I think it, I think we worked out it was 585 filming days. 
That's amazing. Is that more, uh, is that significantly more than you'd normally get on this sort of show? It's not necessarily more than you get for um, a show of this scale. It's just, it's the focus in one single area that's incredible. And, you know, what you always find when you go on these um, filming shoots is you have a, you have quite a steep learning curve. So um, you tend to find that your rate of acquisition of useful shots really starts to peak towards the end. Um, and then you go to a different location, a new story, and you have to start that learning curve again. Whereas the brilliant thing about this is, you know, we, we could build on that learning curve every time we came back. So we weren't starting from square one. We were, you know, we were in a much stronger position and the animals just got to trust us more and more. So our encounters with them became, you know, a lot closer and they were not distracted by anything that we were doing. So we were able to introduce new bits of kit to them that we didn't previously think we'd be able to, you know, if we'd just been there for three weeks, I wouldn't have put a drone up. But by the ninth shoot, they were so used to anything we did that we showed them the drone, we put it in the air and they were super chill. They didn't even look at it <laughs> and they never looked at it. That's quite amazing. How do you, when you go out on your first shoot for a particular species, where do you start? Like, can you tell us a bit about the first day of filming and what you try and do then? Well, it will all depend on what type, you know, what, what animal you're doing. And they're all different and there's very different ways of approaching them. But with the, with the painted wolves, um, our big in for them was our, our guide, Nick Murray, because, because he's known them for so long and he's known Tate a whole life, um, that she's incredibly trusting of him. And just the fact that it was Nick that introduced us to Tate, it's very much a kind of friend of my friend. So there was already a level of trust transferred from her trust for Nick um, and then to us. And then that just developed over time as we, I mean, because we had to get a lot closer than um, Nick needed to for his, you know, for his purposes, he's often set quite a long way back just watching them. But for what we needed to do and get these really intimate filming opportunities, we had to get closer and closer over time. But we did it very gradually. Um, and But it all, it's, I guess the whole thing is based on respect and trust from day one. So when you first meet the animals, you have to make sure that you, you know, you're you respectful and you are constantly responding to their cues because you don't want to, you don't want to upset them because that, that just ruins the relationship. It's all about them, you know, being 100% secure around you that you're not going to do anything weird. Yeah, so how long does a bond like that take to form? How long do you think it took before they were really comfortable with you guys? Um, I think I think they were pretty relaxed with us very quickly, but I think there was, a, there was definitely a, a marked shift um, by shoot three when... Um, when Tate had had her puppies and the puppies had um, popped out of the den and she, they, they were very happy with us um, you know, filming next to the den. And then one day, you know, every morning and every evening, they go out hunting. And so they always leave a babysitter by the den. Um, and this morning, um, Tate joined the hunt and I was thinking, oh, well, I wonder, I wonder who she's left to babysit. And I was looking around, and I couldn't really see anyone, but I thought they were just hidden back in the bushes with a kind of high vantage point to see anything coming in. Um, and so uh, the pack left for their hunt. And then after a little bit, I think I was fiddling with a remote camera, you know, setting up something while, while the adults were away. And the puppies popped out of the den. So I looked up to see where the babysitter was because, you know, that's their job to put them back to bed. Um, but no one was there. And 
then it dawned on me that Tate had left us as the babysitters. So, <laughs> and so I think that was that was the moment where I thought, okay, the trust has got to that level. But um, and it, it really did seem like a big shift. And after that, then you know, it, you know, it was there was no looking back. It was just the, it, the relationship just got better and better, and, and we could you know got to the point where I could sit in the water with them racing around me um, on you know on all sides, filming and photographing. And, you know, it's those sort of experiences that you can't really get any other way than just spending, you know, long periods of time with individual animals. That's incredible. That kind of sounds like Tate also knew that you'd been there long enough that you'd learned how to be a babysitter. (laughs) (laughs) And you had, you knew what you had to do. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's it's really interesting because you get to know them all as um, individuals and, she, and Tate was just a remarkable individual. She was a very, very smart um, animal. Um, there are others within her family who are definitely not so smart, um, but it's, it's really interesting. You know, you don't feel that you just get to know the species better, but you get to know all the individual characters. And, and that was a really kind of joyful thing to, to get to know them so well that you could catch a glimpse of them out of the corner of your eye and you'd know who it was by the way they moved. And that's kind of, the level of um, knowledge we got with these animals. It was quite a wonderful experience. Yeah, that sort of suggests a level of kind of recognition and getting to know each other that probably most of us have only ever experienced with other humans. Other humans or pets, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that would I would say that was the best thing about Dynasty, the fact that it's um, we had that much time in the field. Um, and, yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't do it any other way. I think there were times where we thought, we weren't going to pull this off. I mean, on the second shoot, it was really tough to find the animals. Um, and so we did get to the point of going, should we, shouldn't we, should we, shouldn't we? Um, but I convinced the bosses to let me try. And then the third shoot was um, meeting the meeting the pups. It sealed the deal. And then there was no looking back after that. Yeah, so when you are... Uh doing shows like this, do you end up sort of exploring dead ends? Do you ever have, have shoots where you go and you try and find a pack of animals and you can't find them or they're not cooperative or anything like that? I, I, yes, it does happen. And I've, I don't think I've ever had a failed... I've never had a failed sequence. Um, but as I was just saying, my second shoot uh, on Dynasties was incredibly tough. It was a, it was a month-long shoot and... We had 16-hour days every day, and um, we spent a total of two hours with our subjects. Over <laughs> the whole, course time. of the whole month? Yeah. Wow. And, yeah, it's, it's funny, because when, when, when you find the animals and you're filming, of course it's still tiring, but that just, you know, it, it's enough to keep you going. You can kind of live off adrenaline and fumes for a while, um, if, even if you're kind of empty in the tank. But when you don't find them, the thought of getting up at three in the morning and drive, and you know you're going to be driving all day just looking for tracks. Um, you have to kind of pretend to yourself that you'll find them, even though deep down you know that you didn't see them yesterday or the day before or the day before. <laughs> and that's that's when it can get grueling. But um, but you know we managed to push through that, and um, and by third shoot, and again the third shoot was not um, was by no means a certainty because. Um, the only certainty we had in our location was Tate was very unusual in that she denned in the same dens every year, the same three dens in the same order. And so we knew that we had that guaranteed um, access to the puppies. 
except um, what we hadn't counted on was Blacktip coming in and booting her off her territory. <laughs> so by the time it came around for Puffies, we didn't know where, you know, we did not know where Tate was and we had to issue park-wide searches. And I think the, I think our trackers um, walked every corner of the park and they, they did that for three or four weeks solid to find us um, Tate's den. It was incredible work by them. But if they hadn't found it, that was that was cut-off point. And I think it came to maybe two days before the shoot when we finally got the call that they'd found the dens. Um, and otherwise, we were going to pull, pull the cord in there. And that might have been the show abandoned. Yeah, and that's amazing because surely Black Tip coming in is great for drama, but at least that drama doesn't mean much if you don't manage to capture it on camera. Yeah, it's... Um, Yes, it was. It was. It, it was a great kind of inciting moment. But then it all dawned on us, like, oh dear. <laughs> I also, Tate, you know, our camp was located right next to where Tate normally dens, but suddenly she'd been booted two hours away. So it made our day a lot longer. We had to get up even earlier, drive in the dark, um, and try and find them while it was still dark because uh, they're so kind of crepuscular, um, you know, dawn and dusk, that you really need to be with them. Um, before the light comes up, so it meant very, very long days because we, we basically had a commute built in as well. Then. So you mentioned that you got to know the characters quite well. You could recognise the animals based on how they moved and things like that. It seems like these Natural History Unit landmark series are really heavily storyline-based and very character-based, and that's one of the things that makes them so interesting. So how do you establish those characters? How do you figure out the relationships between the characters and why they're behaving the way they are? Well, a lot of it for me was just purely observation, and and because we're filming everything, when I start to see patterns, I can go back into the rushes and uh, and analyse um, exactly who was doing what when, and and also um, all our rushes were geotagged. So I, so you'll see maps in the film, and and the, the idea came about because I started plotting the key events um, using the, all the GPS tracking points, and so I was able to. I was able to build these kind of territorial boundaries and see how they shifted over time. Um, but it was, yeah, it's just a lot of a lot of thinking about the subject all the time. It was kind of an all-consuming project for me for four years. Um, so, yeah, it's it's it observation and Nick's help. You know, once we'd established who was who, then it was very clear um, what was going on. Yeah, so do these packs of painted wolves have a really defined hierarchy that you knew about beforehand? Like are they all do they all fit within the same sort of patterns? I mean they're they're very egalitarian, but they do have um an alpha male and female and what really defines um the role of the alpha male and female is they're they're the sole breeding pair within the pack and everyone else helps rear the puppies. Um but Beyond that, it's incredibly sharing. Anyone gets injured, they look after them. Um, you know, as Tate was getting older, they were they were just feeding her. It, you know, they are they are very very family oriented. It's it's it, you know it's just a lovely animal to hang around with because they're so kind to each other. And that might sound weird, but you know, I've worked with animals that can be quite you know tough with each other, and to spend so much time with animals that really look after each other and get excited about the puppies. It, it, they're just a joyful animal to play with. Is there part? Is there anyone in the pack that's sort of bottom of the rung and doesn't really get treated well? Um, 
not no not not in our packs not that i noticed i mean occasionally when the puppies are little they'll they'll pick on one for a bit but it it did seem to move around a bit i i didn't really see any bullying or um there, there weren't any outcasts in our packs it was all very inclusive and throughout the course of filming it sounds like you had a really good knowledge of uh, or you and your team had a good knowledge of what the painted wolves do, how they how they behave. Did you see anything that you didn't expect? Uh, yes, we did. I mean, we we saw lots of things that we didn't expect. I won't tell you all of them, but one thing one thing we saw that the science books say uh, doesn't even happen is um, Black Tips Pack started to hunt baboons about six months into filming, um, and uh, it's a very unusual behaviour. It's even even leopards, who people often associate as being baboon hunters, leopards actively avoid hunting baboons statistically. I mean, they will occasionally um, get them, but they much, you know, much prefer an impala. But black coats pack did a total shift in behaviour where about 50% of their diet moved to baboons in the dry season. And uh, we were there to witness it and, uh, and capture it on camera. And we got so many records of it that we are... Uh, able to assist in uh, publishing a new scientific paper on baboon hunting in painted wolves. Wow. So why did they why they make that change? Well, this is my speculation, um, but I think it does hold up. It's because it, what we, we saw a fluctuation of the, uh, the prevalence of baboon in their diet in the, um, in the dry season over the wet season. So in the wet season, they still continue to take a few baboons, but they really went back to Impala. And then the dry season came back, and again they shifted into, um, you know, eating more baboons again. And Mana Pools um, has many, many elephants, and it's got lots of low wet areas. And I think there's such a prevalence of these really massive tracks of elephant footprints. I mean, it looks like, um, you know, they look like craters. And once it gets dry, those those soft mud footprints become baked hard, and Chasing the Impala, we've popped them at 70 kilometers now. I mean, they pick up injuries so easily at that speed. And when they hit those patches of elephant footprints, we've seen um, legs being broken, frequent strains. There's always at least one, one animal limping in the pack. So I think it was just some cost-benefit analysis. And whilst baboons are dangerous in themselves, the, the risk of picking up an injury from hunting Impala in the dry season seems to actually be higher than you know, taking on these big baboons. So that's what I think caused the, uh, the shift. And while you were there, was the dry season drier than usual? Is this a response to a new environmental pressure? Um, no, I don't think so. But um, you know, what was definitely different for for Black Tip was her pack was much bigger than normal as well. I mean, she was up to thirty animals. Now that's that would have been common in the old days, but um, Today it's very rare to see packs of that size, so it, and it also allows them to to hunt slightly differently. I think um, when you've got so many animals, it's easier to distract big male baboons in a troop because they can't be everywhere at once. And if you send thirty animals into the middle of a troop of baboons, you know it's like you know it's a scattergun effect. There's there's only so many ways they can turn. 
these animals, you know, you're wildlife filming, these animals aren't going to do exactly what you want them to do. Um, and presumably that you don't catch everything that, that they do. So how much artistic license do you employ post-production? Can you sort of patch bits together that recreate things that you missed? You know, what's that? Is, is there a trade-off that you try and stick to between accuracy and storytelling? Um, well, we, we made a very um, simple rule um, at the beginning of this production, which was to say, if we, when, you know, if we ever say a character's name, it has to be that character. And we've tried to stick to that as much as possible. And it, it does mean that sometimes you can't necessarily show a sequence that you'd like to do because you simply don't have the, the correct material to edit it properly. So it, you know, that has been, um, that has been something that we have to be aware of, but I think when you watch the film, you'll see that it's really worth the payoff because whilst these animals can look very similar because we've really, um, stuck solidly to tape being taped and black tip being black tips and also using music to help represent the two different characters. I think, I think the audience will actually start to clock which individuals, which individual. And, and that's, you know, that's something that, that I think will, I think they'll start to see that, you know, they'll get deeper into the characters of the animals to be able to see these subtle differences. Um, and the fact that it's constantly reinforced these subtle differences, then I think it will, it'll help people to see them as individuals and not just as a species. Yeah, and I guess if you guys had that experience where you start to recognise them as individuals, then it's nice to be able to give the audience the chance to to get to know them that well yeah. as well, even though you know the audience has a very short amount of time with them. But I, I mean, I I was watching um, some of it with my niece. Um, I think back when she was about eleven, and she was saying, "How do you tell them apart?" So I gave her a quick description of how to spot Tate and how to spot Blacktip. And after that, every time one of them came on the screen, she could tell me who they were. Brilliant. Can you give us that description? <laughs> well, I think, we'd, I think we'll be doing it on the website, actually. But um, it, well, Tate is very easy because she has um, three white flecks on one, on one of her flanks. And whilst that's very common in painted walls generally, in her family, they have almost no white markings on them. They're, most, they're mostly brown and black. So it's... Um, it's very easy to spot Tate, um, and black tip is interesting because she ha- I mean, she has almost no white on her. She has a very small black tip on her tail, but as she, you know that's her, that's where her name comes from. But it can be often quite hard to see. But what's really easy to spot with her is that her brown markings are very desaturated. So whilst all the other animals have got this kind of chestnutty brown, hers is almost a grey brown, and I, and I find it the easiest animal to spot at any distance. Um, I recognise you know, the profile of her nose, the, the darkness of her body, and the shape of her undercarriage. I can see her in silhouette and, and spot her immediately. And also, it's just it's interesting when you spend time with them. You're naturally drawn to the alphas. There's just something about the way they move. They have an authority that you 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 can spot them out really quickly, and your attention is always grabbed by the alpha alpha animals. And can you tell me a little bit about how you guys film the packs when they're on the move compared to how you film them when they're stationary? Like, what sort of uh, what sort of equipment are you using? Well, we I mean we had plenty of fancy kit on this, but um, you know you can only pick and choose when you use that because you know expensive helicopters and stuff. It means you have to be quite prudent about when you do it. So most of the time we're filming off a tripod. Um, which obviously is not a moving thing. So you have to really be able to get into the heads of the animals because if you follow them, then obviously you end up shooting their bums and then going away. <laughs> and you don't want that. 
we tend to prefer faces. So, so you're constantly having to predict which way they're going to go and try and get ahead of them, get out of the vehicle in time, but you and trust they're coming in. You know, because often if they're lying down, you say, okay, I think they're about to go hunting. It got to the point where we were so good at it, we could drive five kilometers away. And, you know, you imagine they could go in 360 degrees, whichever way they wanted. But, you know, sure enough, 15 minutes later, we'd have them barreling straight down the lens. And often they'd run either side of us. You know, they were so used to us that they wouldn't. I think they actively uh, chose to do flyby sometimes. It was just part of their fun. Um, so, it, yeah, it's a lot of gambling. and But you have to kind of take that kind of high-risk approach to get those better shots because you could kind of very slowly follow behind them. But as I say, you're just going to be shooting bums and tails. Um, and, and we needed kind of faces and that kind of onto-camera action. And how do you think the Painted Wolves interpreted you guys? What, did, what do you think they thought you were doing? I really couldn't say. I think they must have thought we were super weird to just be following <laughs> them endlessly and not taking their food. Because, <laughs> they, you know, they're often trailed by hyenas, but hyenas are always there um, nabbing their food, whereas we were just, you know, just following them for months and years. And I have no idea what they thought. Um, but uh, they definitely seem to enjoy our presence. That's that's for sure. Yeah. Do you think that your presence there ever changed their behaviour? And if it did, do you, do you take steps to mitigate that? We well, the first thing I would say on that is um, we weren't what we found was we weren't habituating them to people. They habituated to us as individuals. Um, and we were also very careful because, you know, they trusted us so much that we could get as close as we liked. But obviously working in a place where there's tourists, we never wanted the tourists to kind of see what we were doing and think it would be acceptable for them to try and do it. So we'd, we'd back off the animals massively if we saw tourists about simply because we didn't want um, humans who didn't have that relationship with uh, the animal trying to push it and and uh, you know interfere with their hunting or any of these things, um, but no, I don't think we ourselves impacted them at all. What we it was what we need to film is natural behaviour. So the last thing we want to do at any point is to interfere with what they're trying to do because we're there to film what they do, um, and so we just monitor that very carefully. And you know you can you can read their body language very easily to see their stress levels and. And they'll give warning growls if they're upset. We just didn't get any of those cues. They were they were genuinely um, happy for us to be around. So no, I don't think I don't think we affected their behaviour at all. And we were there for some very dramatic moments. Um, I won't say what they were, but when you know when you've got mortal danger, the last thing you want is an animal looking at the camera crew and going, "What are those people doing?" And they never did because I made it my you know a strict thing that. You know, I build up a level of trust to the point that when things did get hairy, they would never worry about where we were because we didn't want to interfere with their ability to def- you know, to defend themselves or to, you know, to defend the puppies. You mentioned that Mana Pools, this area that you were filming in, has quite a few tourists around. Can you describe the area to us? What's it? What's it used for? Um, well, it's a it's a national park and a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It is absolutely stunningly beautiful. Um, I would say of all the places in the world that I've worked, it's the most beautiful. It's, for me, it's really paradise. It's got the Zambezi River um, going on the uh, you know on the northern border, and then just a, the backdrop is the Zambian mountains. So just the other side of um, the Zambezi, I've got this beautiful backdrop of the 
around things, which is very helpful for our storytelling because it was a really good kind of um, way of letting the audience see which direction the animals were traveling because you, it was kind of this very distinct geography. And then you've got um, subplanes, which are um, absolutely stunning, covered in termite mounds and, um, um, you know, some big, some big, but kind of sparsely, um, sparsely separated trees. So it's great viewing opportunities. And, and it's just the diversity of animals there that was a massive selling point for us as well, because, you know, because we're not doing sequence work where you're going to a new, new location every three or four minutes, you need to keep, you need to have a diversity in your location that keeps it feeling fresh for the audience. And so we had, we, I think we had interactions with our animals and uh, other species. I think we had 10 different interspecies interactions and, and that's something that's kind of testament to how biodiverse monopoles is. It's, just, it's a beautiful spot to work. I would recommend people to go there. Yeah, what's the, um, how accessible is it? How can people go in and see the area? Uh, well, you are allowed to self-drive. And it's actually, a, it's, a, it's a walking park as well. Um, but I would recommend anyone who goes there to actually hire a guide, one for their safety and two, just because you'll, you'll get so much more from the place if you have a good set of eyes who understands all the signs and stuff who can interpret the place for you. Um, and you'll have a much better chance of finding the painted walls as well if you, if you employ someone who actually knows the area because they, believe me, they're elusive. <laughs> the film might not make it seem so, but, um, yeah, they can they can take a while to find. Yeah, and did you look at the human impact on these animals at all? It's not within the main narrative of the film. There's 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 we allude to it a little bit because I felt that um, the reason that Black Tip didn't move west and she moved east instead, I think that was because of human impact in the west that had diminished the um, the amount of prey that she would have access to. So that you know that was. But really, in the main film, that was that was the only sense that we felt um, the impact of humanity. And the rest was actually, it was, it's so focused on the individual and day-to-day lives of these packs that, you know, if people had been a part of the story, then they'd have been in there. But they, they simply weren't, apart from a bit of context at the beginning. Um, but, I, you know, we do sum up at the end um, to show how important Tate's been, Um because there's not many of these animals left. There's only about 6,600, and actually I'll be surprised if there's that many now. Um, so, you know, to look at Tate's family tree and, and, and how, just how many offspring she's had, she's, she's just an incredible, um, incredibly important painted wolf. Um, and I'm very glad I got to meet her. Yeah, so you've told us a little bit about when you guys uh, ended up <laughs> being left with the being left with the cubs um, at the den. Apart from that, did you have a favourite filming experience that really stands out? I mean, there's so many, um, but the, I guess when the puppies are mobile, you know, once they've left the den and they're just exploring the world for the first time, it's, they're just so much fun. They're so cute, and uh, and near the end of filming. Um, we had a really good big litter of puppies and and just it was so much fun um sitting sitting on the ground with them and then racing around and playing all sorts of stupid games um uh, yeah i mean they're just they're just constantly fun to watch there's never really a boring moment with these animals awesome 
And in terms of the filming techniques that you use and the technologies, what's new in Dynasties? Is there new technology that you're employing now that you hadn't worked with before? Um, it's, I wouldn't say it's radically new, but um, but really we just we had a new camera sensor that um, was a lot more sensitive. So I would say without it, eighty percent of our footage would have been unachievable uh, because of the because of the patterns of behavior of these animals so they they often didn't even get up until the sun was actually set and normal cameras just really struggle with light as soon as it gets to that and we didn't want to do the whole film in uh, infrared or thermal i mean we do have we have a thermal sequence in the film which is really amazing but obviously we wanted to get most of it in color so there's a there's an interaction with honey badgers that um it looks like it's in the daylight but it actually happened after sunset and uh, with a with our previous cameras, we just would have missed that whole encounter. We just we would have seen it with our eye. But these cameras were delivering such good image that it was a while after sunset where the cameras were actually seeing better than our eyes. I mean that that fell off quite quickly, and then our eyes took over again. But um, but you know it was just giving us that I guess about extra half an hour of light and um, filmable light that made all the difference particularly for the species. If, uh, if money and technology were no barrier, what filming projects would you want to pursue? Uh, I've always wanted to um, do something up on the Tibetan plateau. I'd like, to do, um, I'd like to do something that has an interface of Tibetan fox, palace cat, Tibetan bear, Tibetan wolf and snow leopard. That would be, you know, to to weave those five animals into a, into a good story. I, I would love to do that. Cool. And what do you think's next in wildlife filming with uh, technology developing and techniques developing? What are we going to see in the future that's going to be different? It's, you know, it's hard to predict. Um, I, I remember when, um, the, you know, the first drones came out and um, they just, they were just crashing <laughs> and they seemed so uncontrollable and the quality was really bad. And, and I was thinking, do these things really have a future? And, and now I'd say the best shot in my whole program um, is from a drone. It's just an incredible shot. Um, and, and it, you know, it's, it's things like that that just open up new possibilities because once you've got a drone to do something, uh, you, know, you can actually get it to do small moves. So, suddenly you don't need to think about taking a heavy crane out to location because you can just get the drone to do the motion of the crane that you would, you know, you were doing a reveal shot and suddenly the kit gets a lot smaller. So you can, it just, it's, it's kind of subtle shifts that allow you to think about things quite differently and, and um, will transform the look of your shows. Um, you know, if we were to get silent drones again, that would, that would open up a lot of new possibilities because at the moment the drones could be quite noisy and it was fine for the painted walls because they trusted us so much that um, they knew that that was part of us. But you have to be careful, you know, I don't, you can't use a drone on every species because of the noise it makes. So you have, to, you have to be very respectful of each individual animal's reaction to your presence and what equipment you're using and you have to use appropriate equipment. So a silent drone would be a great thing for us, I think. Yeah, so you mentioned that favourite shot that you got was um, was from a drone. Can you describe that shot to us? What were you capturing there? Um, that was, well, 
and the funny thing was that this, these aren't, um, it wasn't our most experienced camera operators. It was two researchers who were very, very talented. Um, so they would kind of work on my editorial team and they spent a month um, trying to capture a variety of images. And this one in particular one that stands out, I've been trying to get a shot like this a long time in the helicopter, but it's where it's a top shot with the dogs running, sorry, the painted walls running, and um, and their shadows are being cast perfectly sideways. So you can, so whilst the animals themselves just look like a little thin line, you've got a perfect flat silhouette of, the, of each animal running in a line, and it just it's the most beautiful image, and it can only be filmed for you know the chance of getting it only happens for a couple of minutes each day because the sun's dropping pretty fast and it's only at a certain height that it kind of gives the right length shadow. And also then they have to be running at the right orientation to the sun to get it and not be in tree cover. So there's, there's so many things that have to come together to get that perfect shot and they totally nailed it. And, it's, um, and it comes at a really important part in the film as well. So it's made all the more impactful um, by you know, when it happened. That was Nick Lyon talking about filming Painted Wolves for the new BBC series Dynasties, which you can watch this Sunday at 8.30pm on BBC One. Previous episodes can be streamed on BBC iPlayer. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast. In our December issue, we dig deep into the surface of Mars and explore what NASA's InSight mission could help us discover about the structure of the Red Planet. We also investigate how nuclear fusion could provide us with unlimited energy and what will happen once the International Space Station ceases operation. The magazine is available now, and there is, of course, much more inside. And remember, if you like what you hear, then please rate, review and share with anybody you think might enjoy our podcast. Also, if there's anybody you would like us to speak to, or a topic you want us to cover, then let us know on Twitter at Science Focus. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.